Well, here are a few things you may not know about the contributions of early Christianity. Maybe you don't know that organized healthcare and hospitals were the result of the effort of the church when others were fleeing cities during the plague and neglecting the poor and the sick. It was the church who stayed behind and cared for the sick and needy. There was even one time a Catholic declaration that every monastery and church should have a clinic attached to it. Christians gave us foster care and adoption. When in ancient cultures, children were being sold for human sacrifices or literally thrown in the trash if they were the wrong gender or even killed if they were not wanted or born with a birth defect, it was Christians early Christians who would rescue the children, raise them, or help place them in the homes of other Christians who could raise them themselves. Christianity was responsible for elevating women and human sexuality in society. Jesus frequently, frequently addressed, confronted, and pushed back on the mistreatment and objectification of women in his public ministry. When women were seen as subordinate to men, it was Jesus that told men even to look at a woman lustfully as disrespectful. It's the equivalent of having adultery. He pushed back on the religious and cultural norms of treating women as inferiors. He made it a point to engage with women in ways that were forbidden, ministering to them and showing them dignity when they hadn't been before. Christianity gave us education for the working class. It was a man named Robert Rakes in England in the 18th century that was trying to reform prisons. And he believed that if he could help children get an education who were working in factories every single day except for Sunday, if he could educate them he would decrease the possibility of them ending up in prison later. By the time he died, over 500,000 children in England had gone through his Sunday schools. And they were, by the way, educating them and not just teaching them more Bible lessons. It was serving them in a practical way. Christians were a driving force in ending slavery and fighting for civil rights in America. Now, there were many people who called themselves Christians that practiced slavery, and there were many people who identified as Christians that stood against people of color all through history. But it was true followers of Christ that became abolitionists and stood up and put pressure on until slavery came to an end, and who stood by Dr. Martin Luther King, who himself was a Baptist pastor and help raise up churches to put pressure on political figures until blacks had the same rights in America as whites. It's Christians that gave us scientific discovery and advancement. Kepler, Galileo, Sir Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, William Thomas Calvin, Robert Boyle, Gregor Mendel, Carl Friedrich Gauss, Florence Nightingale, Volta, Lord Kelvin, Werner Heisenberg, and Samuel Morse are just some of the huge, immense contributors to science. Literally, we would not be where we are today scientifically if it weren't for these men and women of faith whose belief in God motivated them to advance science, not shrink back from it. I'd love to be able to say I could go on and on and on, but there's a distinct period in history in which all of that seems to have come to an end, where our contributions as the church seem to have moved from contributing to society and serving society and helping society to hurting society. I don't mean hurting H-U-R-T-I-N-G, although I think that's true as well, but I mean hurting H-E-R-D-I-N-G, where we think our job is to be the, the moral shepherds of society, to steer people into behaving how we prescribe they should behave. And we use the Bible to justify that, but we poke and we prod and we condemn and we judge and we preach and we quote and we do all that we can to get people to conform to the way we believe that they should behave, even 
as non-followers of Christ. We've begun to believe somehow that the world needs our beliefs, our rules, our lectures, our judgment, our quoting of scriptures more than it needs our help. It reminds me of a press conference back in 1986. He happens to be probably my favorite president. I think he was smart, witty, funny, charming. In a press conference, Ronald Reagan said the nine most terrifying words that anyone can hear is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> but it reminds me of our church, and I mean church, capital C, universal, that I wonder if a more terrifying quote in 2023 might be, I'm a Christian and I'm here to help. I don't know that the world really wants our help anymore. I don't know if they want our contributions anymore because they've come to believe that the only thing we have to contribute anymore is vitriolic judgment and mean-spirited hate and bigotry and all of the things that divide us as a culture instead of serve. But it's those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two that show us what a church following Jesus' example really looks like. Now you don't have this in your notes, it won't be on the screen, but let me read a passage to you from Acts chapter two. This is what the church looked like right after Jesus' public ministry. They were now on their own to do church and have nothing other than his example and here's what it looked like. They sold their land and the things they owned. Then they divided the money and gave it to those who needed it. The believers shared a common purpose and every day they spent much of their time together in the temple area. They also ate together in their homes. They were happy to share their food and ate joy with joyful hearts. The believers praised God and were respected by all the people. More and more people were being saved every day and the Lord was adding them to their group. Let me summarize what that says. Their relationship with Christ compelled them to sacrificially and generously give so that they could meaningfully and measurably and practically help people. They gathered together regularly for church and regularly for what we would call small groups. They met together, encouraged each other, and ate together. And they shared their food willingly. And because of how they treated each other and how generous they were, they had the respect and favor of all the people in the city, which paved the way for people to open their hearts to their message, which means people began to become followers of Christ and add to the church simply because the church was helping, practically helping meet felt needs. And if we're going to help people how Jesus did, if we're going to help people like Jesus helped people, number one, our help needs to be practical. Christianity, like virtually every other religion, is fundamentally spiritual, which means that it's ethereal and um, it, they're, they're, we aren't able to measure the effects of Christianity, uh, the effects of our belief in Christ with the five senses. It's Jesus himself who said, the Father is spirit and he looks for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So Christianity is far too ethereal and heavenly and otherworldly to be measured in human standards or human terms or human measurements, right? Wrong. It turns out that most of what we do in modern Christianity, from what we do here on Sundays to what we do in our small groups to what we do even in our personal devotion time has very little to do. As a matter of fact, it's a not accurate, not at all accurate measurement of the substance and sincerity of our faith. Here's how we know that to be true. This is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's James 2, 14 through 17, and it reads like this. Dear brothers, what's the use of saying that you have faith in your Christians if you aren't proving it by helping others? Will that kind of faith save anyone? If you have a friend who's in need of food and clothing, you say to him, well, goodbye, God bless, stay warm, eat hearty. 
and then you don't give him clothes or food, what good does that do? In other words, if you pray for him and say, I'm gonna take it to our church prayer group and I'm gonna call our chaplains and let them know so they can pray for you as well to have a full stomach and boy, just know you have a whole community of people standing behind you praying for a full belly and warm clothes. So you see, it isn't enough just to have faith. You must also do good to prove that you have it. Faith doesn't show itself, or faith that doesn't show itself by good works is no faith at all. It is dead and useless. So I want to say this. We are saved by grace alone, but you are not saved if you can't prove it through the works that you do. It feels a little paradoxical, right? Oh, so I have to do good works to be saved? No, you have to do good works to show that you're saved. Because a saved person will do good works. Someone who doesn't do good works is not saved because a person who is saved will do good works. A person who's alive breathes and has a heartbeat and brain waves, that's all proof you're alive. A person who's dead, like the faith that's described there, will not have that. So you are a person, you're just either a dead person or an alive person. Here's a truth that might be hard for us to accept, especially when we look at our own lives through that narrow lens of this truth. It's not how we see ourselves that determines whether our faith is sincere or has substance. Doesn't matter how sincere you think you are or how substantive you think your faith is. Your faith is measured by how others see you. Because they see your works. Listen to Matthew 5, 16. It says this. In the same way, you should be a light for who? Other people live so that they will what? See the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus says the substance of your belief, of your faith, of your effectiveness as a follower of Christ is measured by what you do. If people don't see you being a Christ follower by doing good things and by helping people, then how could we ever believe that you're truly saved? We have to practically meet the felt needs of people. Number two, if we're going to help people how Jesus did, our help needs to be relentless and unconditional. In case you're still unconvinced that the authenticity and substance of our faith as a follower in Christ is inseparably linked to the things that we do, to how often and how well we serve other people and help other people, I'm just gonna let Jesus do the talking. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking to a group of people and he begins to say, this is how I will judge the world when I sit at the right hand of the Father, I'm going to judge like this. The king will separate people into two groups, goats and sheep. The sheep are good, they're on the right. The goats are bad, they're on the left. And he addresses both of them in this passage. You can read it all later, but let me just read to the part I want you to see today. The king will say to those on his right, these are the good people, enter who, uh, you who are blessed by my father. Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation. And here's why. He says, so blessing has been readied for you long before the world even existed because you did this. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was homeless and you gave me a room. I was shivering and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you stopped to visit. I was in prison and you came to me. Then those sheep are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see? They think he's literally talking about himself. When did we ever see you hungry and feed you thirsty and give you drink? And when did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? And then the king will say, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. Notice in that list of things he never says, and you 
prayed for me and you, you, you uh, judged me and you quoted scripture to me and you tried to help me and you tried to invite me to your Bible study and you tried to get me to do this. He said, when you met my need, when you met my need, when we meet the needs of people that are right in front of us, when we meet the needs that are there, it's not a big deal to give somebody a glass of water who's thirsty or give them a sandwich if they're hungry or give them a coat if they're cold or see them in a time of need. It's not really that big of a deal. It's not that great of a sacrifice. It's, the bar is so low to demonstrate the love we have for God by the love we have for people. Somewhere along the way, Christianity has shelved the most basic, fundamental, foundational behaviors of Christianity and exchanged them for something completely different. In Deuteronomy, way back in the infancy of Israel, this is when they had first been delivered from slavery in Egypt and God was teaching them what it meant to be truly belong to Israel, belong to the heart of God. God said, this is what I require of you. He said this in Deuteronomy 5, 10, and 11. Give freely and spontaneously. Don't have a stingy heart. The way you handle matters like this triggers God. Your God's blessing in everything you do, all your work and ventures. Now listen to this. There are always going to be poor and needy people among you, so I command you, always be generous Open purse and hands, give to your neighbors in trouble, your poor and your hurting neighbors. When did we as believers start relying on the government to do what we should be doing as the church? And then complain when the government does what we should be doing. We want welfare reform, we don't want people coming across the border taking our jobs even though there are millions of open jobs in America that Americans won't take and we've got all kinds of political views and opinions and hatred and anger about the poor and the needy in this country when it's God who assigned us to be caring for them and instead they've become our enemy. They've become an annoyance, they've become a political pawn we're angry the government isn't doing enough and we're angry the government is doing too much or we're angry the government isn't doing the right way and we sit by doing nothing at all. That was a quieter one, but anyway, number three. If we're going to help people how Jesus did, our help needs to be selfless. Can I show you what... Um, Pastor Dan, is my cell phone on the front row right there? Would you bring that to me? Thank you. Can I show you what, um, what helping people looks like in 2023? Let me show you this. Okay. Okay, guys, I'm live right now. I'm streaming. I'm waiting for a few more people. Okay, there you are. Cool. Good to have you guys. Listen, I'm here at the gas station, you know, and um, I saw this lady crying over there because she tried to fill her gas tank and apparently her credit card got declined. And I asked her about it and she said she's like, um, like really having a hard time and stuff. And she's in the middle of a divorce and her husband left her with no money and she can't feed her kids. So check this out, you guys. Um, hey, ma'am, um, I noticed you were like crying and stuff and this is the worst moment of your life. I'd like to be like super cool and pay for your gas. Would that be okay? Okay, just look at, like, I've got like nine people following right now, and they'd love to ha hear you say thank you to me. That would be awesome, okay? Guys, listen, I'm like hashtag blessed, you know, and I like to pass those blessings on and make sure that you all hear about it every time I do. Okay, God bless you guys. Hey, let's keep the Lord number one in our lives, okay? That is what... <laughs> helping people looks like in 2023. But I don't know why I was doing like a surfer guy. <laughs> uh, okay, like I get on Ventura Boulevard. Um, humble bragging has been around for a long, long time. Listen to Matthew 6, 2 through 4. This is Jesus admonishing us 
to do good without letting anyone know about it. When you give something to a poor person, don't tell anyone about it. The hypocrites do this in their, he's talking about the religious leaders, by the way, who were there among the crowd. The hypocrites do this in their meeting places. They also do it in the busy streets of the town. They do this so that other people will praise them. I tell you this, they have already received their gift. God will not give them anything more. So when you give something to a poor person, keep it a secret from other people. Do not tell anyone. Your left hand will not even know what your right hand does. Oops. Nobody else will know about the good things that you have done, but, but, but God sees the things that you do secretly and in return he will give you good things. I love the idea that the greater blessing comes from doing things for the right reason. God wants us to keep humble, broken hearts because the only reason we would tell anyone is so that we can get the good feeling that comes from somebody recognizing how good we really are. But when it's only God that sees our goodness, then we have to be good. We actually have to be good. We actually have to do good for good reasons. And I want that blessing more than I want the blessing of somebody else approving of what I did. And God says when we let people know, when we go around bragging, when we pull them up on stage and go, hey, we just wanna hand you this check and let everybody know how awesome we are. God says that's it, that's all you get. Enjoy the applause while it lasts because it ends right there. Number four is this. If we're going to help people how Jesus did, our help needs to be extraordinary. So in modern Christianity, we have taken, unfortunately, a really obnoxious posture. And it sounds like this. Well, as Christians, we have to stand up for, and you can fill in the blank. Because depending on who you're talking to, what church it is, or what political issue it is, or what cultural hot topic it is, that's what we, we have to make sure everyone understands. This thing you're doing, that's wrong. As a church, we have to stand up against that. Or we might say it like this, as Christians, it's our job to. It's our job to. I, I don't, I don't want to do it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I don't want to condemn you and I don't want to judge you. I have to. It's, it's, I've been assigned to the task. Uh, Gavin, you can come back up. You're already there. Oh, hi. Go walk back off the stage and then come back up when I tell you to. <laughs> Stop sneaking up on me. <laughs> but you see, it's neither our call or command to stand up for anything. It says for us to stand against the enemy in our own lives. To resist him so that he doesn't overwhelm us. And it is not our job to do any of the things that we say it's our job to do. I'll tell you what it is our job to do. Love God, love people, prove our love to God by the good things we do to help others. Those are absolutely our job. Jesus said so. Really what we want to do is justify and rationalize, have an excuse for enforcing our made-up moral codes and our anger and our fear and our unchristlike judgment. We want to be able to cover that with a Christian responsibility or mandate that doesn't exist. And so just like there were those in days of old who rationalized slavery in the name of biblical doctrine. And there were those pastors and churches who said vile and horrible things during the civil rights movement to stop 
blacks from getting equal treatment by the government just to be treated as equal human beings. And there were pastors who stood in the way of that happening in the name of Christ. There are people today who malign the dignity and the reputation, the name of Jesus, by doing everything they're not supposed to do and by doing nothing that they're supposed to do. We have a reputation, we're well known. We have set ourselves apart, but for none of the right reasons. And for that reason, it's better for us if you are a genuine follower of Christ, to just walk away from, quit modern Christianity. You will not be able to successfully change modern Christianity. It is a movement, it's a swelling of people who genuinely want it to be their pet project to shape the world in their image and not in the image of God. But followers of Christ will always have to, throughout history, set themselves apart from the religious traditions and doctrines and practices and reputation of those who call themselves Christians but are in fact not. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 25 says this, we all know that when there's a race, all the runners bolt for the finish line, but only one will take the prize. And when you run, run for the prize. Athletes in training are very strict with themselves, exercising self-control over personal desire. And for what? For a wreath that will soon wither or is crushed or is simply forgotten. But that's not our race. We run for the crown that we will wear for eternity. Paul is saying that, listen, as followers of Christ, we understand there are important things in the world, but those things have temporal value. Those things don't last. So when we run, we should, like the athlete, train our bodies. We should, like the athlete, put aside personal desires, but not for the same reasons. We do it for eternal purposes. So when we do help, when we do give, when we do serve, we don't do it for praise. We don't do it for recognition. We don't do it for selfish gratification. We do it for eternal purposes because when we reach the needs of people, we reach the hearts of people. And when we reach the hearts of people, we can show them what Jesus looks like. He's loving and generous and kind and cares for us when we're in need. And I'm talking any need. I'm talking hunger or thirst, or I'm talking emotional need. I'm talking spiritual need. I'm talking when somebody just needs a friend to listen to them without preaching to them or without giving them advice, just to hold them and let them know they have a friend who will listen. That's the kind of need we need to meet because they're all around us every single day. Colossians 3.23 says this. So no matter what your task is, work Hard, always do your best as the Lord's servant, not as man. So listen, you should be serving everyone, especially those that don't deserve it, that have not earned it, that don't like you, that won't accept it, that will reject you, that have made fun of you that you can't even stand being around. Those are the people. You see, when we serve, we don't serve them. We serve Christ through them. Jesus himself said, when you did it unto the least of these, you did that unto me. Can I tell you where anger comes from? Anger comes from hurt. So when you have that angry person at work, your spouse, a parent, that anger comes from unresolved hurt they don't know what to do with. And you just have to remember that you responding with more anger or pushing back or trying to change that anger will never change it. It'll only make them wanna guard that hurt all the more. See, they're trying to protect themselves. And so if you can see them as 
a wounded animal who's just biting and barking and trying to keep anyone else from hurting them, it might help you have a heart of compassion and empathy and understanding where you think, I'm going to serve them until I help heal the hurt that's in their life. You see, that's the work of Christ. That's what Jesus does. And let me end with this. Luke 6, 27 through 31 says, Jesus then said, I say this to you who are listening carefully to me, love the people who want to hurt you and do good things to the people that hate you. Say good things to the people that say bad things against you and pray for those who give you pain. Someone may slap you on one side of your face, then you should let them slap you on the other side too. Someone may take away your coat, and if he does, do not stop him from taking your shirt too. And when anyone asks you for something, just give it to them. Someone may take something that belongs to you. If he does, let him keep it. Do not ask to have it back again. Do the good things for other people that you would want them to do for you. That's the golden rule, by the way, that for years and years and years, whether you were a follower of Christ or not, people understood the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But we often don't read what's before that, where in order to do that, you have to give up your right to dignity and respect and all the things that we think we should as Christians have. Can I tell you that as Christians, you get no rights at all? We surrender rights when we're slaves, and we have said that we are slaves to grace, to the gospel, to the goodness of God. We've been redeemed and pulled out of the consequence of our sin. And because of that, we owe our lives to him. We owe every good thing to him. And because of that, he says, you're not allowed to go around treating people badly and condemning them and judging them. You yourselves have been saved. Therefore, you cannot judge. You are not righteous. Therefore, you can't hold people to a standard of righteousness. You're only made righteous through me but on your own, you are nothing. And therefore you should serve people lovingly, kindly, as Jesus did when he bent down and he washed the feet of his disciples. And he said, you should do this for others. I ran across a quote from Herb Kelleher, who if you know anything about Southwest Airlines, he's the founder. And if you also know, Southwest has a heart in their logo. And they use the term love a lot. They brand it in almost everything they do. And by the way, Southwest was the only airline who didn't take a handout for the government during the pandemic and uh, also during uh, the first financial collapse back in 06 or 08 or whatever that was. They've remained the most profitable airline. And it's because they say there is such a wonderful community in that company. And this was his motto. He said, I'd rather have a company bound by love than driven by fear. Now there's a man who has a company to run and at the end of the day, a company's job is to make a profit. You have to pay people and meet costs and it's meant to make money. Nobody goes through that kind of effort and works that hard to just break even or lose money. But he declared that his company would be bound by love and not driven by fear. And I'm fearful that Christianity has become a religion not bound by love, not love for God and not love for people, but driving people through the fear of judgment and condemnation and hatred. People don't want to come to church because they don't want to be judged. People don't want to come to church because they don't want those who are actively sinning to judge them for doing the same thing. People don't want to come to church because they can't tell the difference between us and them. So why give up a Sunday morning just to be judged, condemned, hated, mistreated, talked about. 
Wouldn't you rather stay home than come and receive that kind of treatment? And you say, that's not us, pastor. That's not the way we treat people. And I say, absolutely not. We don't treat people that way. And I will tell you this, if I find that anyone's being run out of summit, judged at summit, condemned at summit, preached at at summit, I would rather have that person doing the judging, the condemning, the preaching, go find, there's plenty of churches around here that will welcome you and love having you. You'll fit right in. As for us, this becomes the safe place for the marginalized, the broken, the hurting, those who don't yet know Jesus, but will know who he is because of our love, because of our help. We are getting ready to go into 2024 and with that, we are going into a new season of vision and of action and of true genuine ministry. I'm gonna tell you that there have been seasons in which I've chosen the direction we would go as a church based entirely on strategy and, and, and motivating uh, uh, um, uh, a shift of growth and things that I thought were really good, things that I thought we should be doing as a church. We should be growing, we should be reaching out, we should be doing more of this and more of that. But I have to tell you, I don't know that it was driven by a true passion for people. I say that as one who I'm desperately in love with non-believers. I love the unchurched. Some of my happiest moments in my life were when I was outside of ministry for a period. When we first came back to California from Arizona and we were wounded and broken from our ministry experience and I ended up getting a job at CarMax and for about four months, I was just a regular person with a story. And I used to sit in our cubicles, which we called offices for some unimaginable reason, I don't know why, but we sat in our cubicles and people would just pour out their story and they would ask for help and advice. And I did everything possible to cover my identity, especially as a pastor. I just wanted to just do my thing and go home. But even in my broken relationship with Christ, even in my struggling relationship with Christ as I was working through my own stuff and trying to trust him again and feeling like he had left me out to dry. Even in that, my relationship with him was drawing people to me. And I loved getting to see people with their guard down and just share their story and share their hurt. And that's why when I get on a plane, people say, what do you do for a living? I just go, oh my God, seriously? The second I say, oh, I'm a pastor. Oh God, I used to go to church and I was like, I know, Trezor, I know, I know. Now I just say, I'm a professional hitman, but now I have to kill you, so you shouldn't have really asked. <sighs> What's your address? Um, I love unbelievers. And I don't think that's extraordinary because that is really the heart of Jesus. He tells stories of, wouldn't a really good shepherd leave the 99 and go out for the one? And so 2024 is really about us just going, we're okay. We're okay, let's go get the one. And then the one after that, and then the one after that, and then the one after that, because that's really what God celebrates. And we don't do it through, hey, you should come to our church. We do it through 
finding people in their place of need and loving them right where they're at and expecting nothing in return and helping when we can help in every way that we can help and as practically as we can help. Because it does two things. Number one, we obey the command of God to love God and love people and we prove that our faith actually is real by doing the things that prove our faith is real. But I'm gonna tell you, and I'm just gonna tell you to relax your sphincter right now, we can't do that under the current circumstances. We are in the midst of making deep, historic cuts so that we can move more money into ministry and less into payroll and less into overhead and less into everything it takes that it's required to do church. We want more money to go into ministry. At the end of this month, if you weren't here last week, Heather, our children's director, is transitioning off the team and getting a job so that they can continue to have income in their house. They're gonna stay here at the church, but she can't continue to be children's director because we had to reduce her hours to half of what they were. And I don't blame her. You have to do what you have to do. The beginning of February, Lisa will cut her hours in half here at the church and get income outside of the church. In February, I will begin to get income outside of the church as well. In September, I laid off Jess, my assistant and office manager. We've cut ties with all of the vendors who provided bookkeeping and payroll and all the other things and we've moved that inside so that we can save money so that every dollar can go to ministry and it's still not enough. And so today, we move by faith and we take a one day offering. If you don't know what that was, I said for everybody to go home, figure out what you make in a year and then divide that by 365. And what you make in one day, we're gonna give to the ministry of 2024. If you didn't come prepared for that, that's fine. There's next week as well. But I want us to give in a way that says, I wanna be a part of what it takes to do ministry. And if you wanna know a little bit of what that looks like, Pastor Jared did a great job of putting together a little of what we did in 2023 and what it's gonna look like in 2024. was coming and yet when I watched that video for the first time I got excited and inspired because in all of those things we've asked every one of our team members to attach a number of people to that. Whatever it is, if it's a um, an event for students to invite other students, if it's a, a women's event in which you can invite friends and family or neighbors or a coworker, somebody who is 
on the margin and doesn't want to be around church people and doesn't like to be among people they don't know because they feel vulnerable or, 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 or even if it's an event that we've done, man, I am so proud of our pop-up events because people stepped up and said, yeah, do them at our home and, and we just tried something new and literally 1,500 people came into our own neighborhoods, our own yards, our own events, and we met them where they lived, and we put a good taste in their mouth for church, maybe for the very first time. And here's our goal, for five straight years, for us to touch the lives in a positive way, to leave a mark on people, to help people, to reach people with the love, the compassion, the empathy, the kindness, the generosity of Christ through what we do, 5,000 people a year for five straight years. Can I tell you, we already did it in 2023. We believe we're gonna do even more than that in 2024 because I want you to hear this. In five years, we will have reached half of the population of Lincoln with doing something meaningful in their life that left the mark of Christ in their heart. Don't you wanna be a part of a church that reaches into its community? And I, I, I mean, I, I know I've joked about this. I don't want a single person unless there's an organic opportunity to do it, unless the person is just making it impossible to not do it. I don't want us out there inviting people to summit. I don't want us to brag about ourselves. I wanna just do good things and when they just say, who are you? Why are you doing this? What is this? You can just say, oh, it's our church. We, honestly, we love being in the community. We love doing things for the community. Who? Who's your church? Summit Church. Good meeting you. And if they say, oh, when are your services? Ah, don't even worry about our services. Just, I want them to find us. I don't want to drag them in. I don't want to put them in a headlock. I don't want to guilt them to coming. I don't want to make them seem, make it seem to them like it's conditioned. We did this for you so that you'll come be a part of our church. But how many know this? Just like the church in Acts. When they were good to each other and they were good to the community, they had favor and respect from the community. And it says, in every single day, more were added. Uh, Gavin, can you, um, oh, you got the whole band there. Okay, great. Now, all of them snuck up this time. Sheesh, <laughs> kind of starting to feel a little threatened, honestly. It's a lot. Uh, but you guys can begin to play and um, we're gonna receive this offering and um, I told you to come prepared not to give it and I don't want you to give it if the second you leave here, you're going to resent that you gave it, right? It means you're not ready. There's, there's, there's something that you need to work out. You and God, go work that out. I'm good with that. Please don't give if you're not ready to do this and say, I want every dollar of this to go to do those things and more things. And not only that, in 2024, we're calling you to step up and serve. Serve at a greater level or maybe serve for the very first time. With Heather transitioning out of her position, Pastor Jamie is taking on a new role. We're giving her a new title. We're moving her away from her responsibilities elsewhere and she's gonna be thriving families pastor and one of her responsibilities is taking on the, the uh, responsibility of running the teams of volunteers that will serve the children's ministry because we have to take what Heather does and distribute that. Brooke Lindner, who's grew up in my youth ministry in Fair Oaks, and her and her, as well as her husband did, um, both are here, and, and Brooke's amazing, and we asked Brooke if she would be the weekend director, the point person, so families and kids and volunteers would have one person to go to on the weekend, and she says, I'll step up and give up my weekends to do that, and she's volunteering to do that. That's the kind of volunteering that we need. Yeah, amen. That's what we need, you see, because in order for us to do this, we would be doing it with fewer staff and less 
resources and less energy and time. So that means we all have to give, not only financially, but our time and our energy and our talents and our abilities. We have tech every Sunday morning in children's ministry that glitches and goes haywire, and it's often very frustrating. So we need people to step up and go, I'm pretty techie. Like, I know how to do TVs and apps and computers just to get them going, and that you would just step up on a Sunday and help us with that. Those are the kind of opportunities that are simple, that are easy, and that we need that kind of generosity from you. But I will tell you that Amazon and Sam's Club and Costco and Walmart and Target and Smart and Fine, all the places where we shop, we tried to say, could we pray with, pay with prayers or um, with Jesus bucks? And they were like, hey, I don't think we accept those. And I said, so real dollars, huh? And um, that's what we have to have to make church work. And so I'm asking for you to give generously. And don't worry if you didn't come prepared in 2024. We're going to ask again. I'm going to ask actually every month that you set aside something to help above and beyond that it just goes to this and this alone. And when I say it'll only go to this, meeting these objectives, meeting the needs and helping and touching 5,000 lives, I mean every dollar. We're not adding more staff. We're not restoring people's positions. We're not using any of it for that. It's a commitment that we've made. But in order for us to have a story five years from now in which we go, this is amazing. Look at what we did because we all stepped into this space together. We all have to step into the space together. Father, thank you for this moment in which we can do something meaningful and practical to change this city for eternity. I pray that you would Keep the promises in a measurable, tangible way so that every person who gave above and beyond that they say, oh my gosh, to watch the way God blessed me because of this, I feel even bad. I feel bad that I got this blessing because he's blessed me more than I gave. I pray that you would do that for people so they would understand the true blessing of being generous in moments like this. And that's my prayer for all of us that what we set out to do in this moment, that at the end of 2024, we'll look back and our jaws will drop at the thousands of lives that we touched because we said yes to you in a moment like this. In Jesus' name, amen.